MSW Media. News with swearing. Daily beans, daily beans. Daily beans, daily beans. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Thursday, August 27, 2020. We are on vacation. We have two more days left to go. We will be back Monday with you with all of the news and swearing that you could ever possibly want. In the meantime, uh, our engineers and producers have put together a lovely combination of interviews and, and funny good news segments and just some of the best moments we've had here on the show. And a lot of these interviews are extremely relevant today. So please take a listen. And we'll be back Monday to guide you through the final 65 days leading up to this incredibly consequential election. We'll see you then and enjoy today's show. All right. In my opinion, the lead story from the weekend has to do with a deliberate unmasking of an anonymous source the FBI promised to protect. This is from the New York Times. Um, and they say shortly after the BuzzFeed publication of the Steele dossier in 2017, which we all remember, an expert in Russian politics told the FBI he had been a key source for the Steele dossier. Uh, the FBI had approached the expert, a man named Igor Danchenko, uh, and they did this as they vetted the dossier's claims. He agreed to tell investigators what he knew with with one important caveat that, you know, and this is according to people who are familiar with the matter. His caveat is that the FBI keep his identity a secret so he could protect himself and his sources and his family and friends in Russia. We know people tend to fall out of fourth floor windows when uh, <laughs> when their identities are released. But last week, Barr directed the FBI to declassify a redacted report about its three-day interview of Mr. Danchenko in 2017 and hand it over to Senator Lindsey Graham, who then promptly made the summary public while calling the entire Russia investigation corrupt. Um, we already know that the Steele dossier had nothing to do with what, you know, the opening of, of the Russia investigation. We'll get into that in a minute. But the report was redacted. It, blank, it blacked out Mr. Danchenko's name and other identifying information. But within two days, the post on a newly created blog entitled, I found the primary subsource, uh, identified him, citing clues left visible in the FBI document. Uh, a pseudonymous Twitter account created in May then prompted the existence of the blog. And the next day, RT, that's the Kremlin-owned Russian state television English language news propaganda outlet, published an article amplifying Mr. Danchenko's identification. This outing, of course, uh, and a lot of former law enforcement, current law, former law enforcement have said that this this, out, this outing will make it hard for FBI agents to gain the trust of people they need to cooperate in future and unrelated investigations. And that could be one of the most damaging things about this, if not just the release of the identity of this person uh, itself. It's important to reiterate that the Steele dossier, as I said, played no role in the FBI's opening of the Russia investigation in July 2016. And Mr. Mueller, Mueller, you know, didn't for the Mueller investigation, did not rely on it um, for his report, any part of it, as a matter of fact. Uh, and but but, you know, large chunks of it were used in obtaining a FISA warrant against Carter Page, which is why the Republicans are freaking out about this, even though Mueller didn't bring any charges against Carter Page and Carter Page. When those FISA warrants were signed by Rod Rosenstein and Republicans, by the way, those renewals will, were signed uh, after uh, the and as well as the initial FISA warrant after uh, Carter Page had left the campaign. So there's no way that this could be considered spying on the campaign 
he was no longer with the campaign. Charges weren't brought against him, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but the Steele dossier was not what started open the Russia investigation. As we know, we've gone over this multiple times. We've had Andrew McCabe on the show several times. We've had people testify to Congress multiple times. The Republicans know better that the Russia investigation was opened when uh, an Australian diplomat named Alexander Downer, uh, who months earlier in the spring had had met with Papadopoulos, George Papadopoulos, coffee boy, uh, part of the national security team, had met with him in a London pub, and uh, Papadopoulos told him he had contacts with Russia who had dirt on Hillary Clinton. And until the hacks happened, uh, the Australians didn't think anything of it. And then when it did, they contacted the FBI that July. Uh, and on the weekend, that's when they dispatched people to uh, London to find out more about this this breach and and possible connections between Papadopoulos, the Trump campaign, Mifsud, and the Russians. That's what prompted the opening of the Russian investigation. We know it, they know it, but they're still being dicks about this. And also, a court has rejected Trump's effort to end a probe into Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross's use of a personal email for government business. Um, I, you know, no one's ever really cared about people using personal emails for government business, right? Right? That's never been a big deal? No? Uh, but after the administration conceded that Ross failed to follow a federal law on multiple occasions, the court ruled it was unreasonable that the Commerce Department excluded Secretary Ross's personal email account from its search for records in the investigation. And to date, uh, Democracy Forward, that's uh, who filed the Freedom of Information Act request, has revealed in their findings, in the, in the FOIA findings that they've gotten, that Ross received or sent at least 230 work-related emails from his personal email account, including correspondence with numerous domestic and foreign corporations, uh, with business before the department, not just random, but those who had business before the Commerce Department. Uh, there were discussions with lobbyists. There was correspondence with a, a Holocaust denier named Chuck Johnson. There were emails with Newt Gingrich about GOP donors interested in investment opportunities and emails from Rick Grinnell um, about meetings with foreign manufacturers. So Commerce is now ordered to include those private emails in the search of agency business in that ongoing investigation by the National Archives. And from BuzzFeed's Zoe Tillman, a federal judge on Friday has denied a request by the Oregon Attorney General's office for an order that would require federal law enforcement officers in Portland to identify themselves when making arrests and placing limits on the detention and arrests of protesters. U.S. District Judge Michael Mossman uh, found that State Attorney General Ellen Rosenblum lacked standing to bring lawsuit uh, to bring a lawsuit on behalf of the Oregon residents because her office hadn't articulated any specific state interest beyond the constitutional rights of individuals. Hmm. Uh, Rosenblum's office filed uh, one of multiple pending lawsuits in, in federal court challenging the Trump administration's deployment of federal officers, largely from agencies within the Department of Homeland Security, to Portland. Rosenblum's complaint accused federal officers of violating the constitutional rights of Oregonians, citing reports that individuals had been picked up off the street and detained without probable cause. Uh, the offices of the Inspector General for the Departments of Homeland Security and Department of Justice announced this week a joint effort, apparently, or at least uh, in tandem, that they're investigating the actions by federal law enforcement officers in Portland. And we've discussed how both of these inspectors general uh, doing this together make it a little harder for Trump to retaliate against them. And then, of course, in the previous story with the dossier scandal and all that shit, you know, where Horowitz came out with his report saying his IG report saying that the FISA warrant for Carter Page had 17 errors in it. Uh, and that's what, you know, the Republicans are glomming onto, even though Page had already left the campaign and was never charged. Anyway, um, 
that's Horowitz. That's the the inspector general here uh, that from the Department of Justice that's going to be investigating the federal law enforcement officers in Portland and D.C., by the way. And uh, and so it's also hard. That makes it hard for Trump to go after Horowitz because he relies on Horowitz's finding that the FISA application for Carter Page had errors in it. It's sort of what his whole Obama spied on my campaign bullshit is based on, even though it's based on it inaccurately. And Horowitz actually found that there was no political bias within the department when making those decisions. Uh, Mossman's ruling came one day after another federal judge in Portland, U.S. District Judge Michael Simon, granted an order restricting the activities of federal officers. Simon entered a temporary restraining order on Thursday that bars federal officers from arresting or using force specifically against journalists and legal observers at demonstrations unless there's probable cause that they committed a crime. Simon also ruled that. And by the way, shouldn't there always be probable cause that somebody committed a crime if they're going to be arrested and detained? Um, Just my thoughts. Um, Constitution, whatever. Uh, Simon also ruled uh, that clearly marking, uh, clearly marked journalists and legal observers did not have to follow dispersal orders, writing that journalists are present to report on whether authorities are acting within the law. Rosenblum's office asked Mossman to also enter an immediate order while the case is pending that would bar federal law enforcement officers from making arrests or detaining people without probable cause or warrant and require federal officers who make arrests to identify themselves and explain the reason they're being arrested. But in his order on Friday, the judge repeatedly described this as uh, this case is unusual, writing that typically in cases involving allegations of constitutional violations during protests, the people affected would be the ones to file the lawsuit, not the state. Rosenblum's office was also seeking uh, a future-looking injunction, which would set an unusually high bar, quote-unquote, for the attorney general's office to clear, and that's according to the judge. More generally, the judge wrote that the chilling effect on the speech rights of Oregon residents didn't represent the kind of state-specific issue that the attorney general's office had to show to have standing to sue. Uh, Even if the state did have standing... Uh, The judge found that the state failed to present evidence that illegal seizures and arrests by federal law enforcement officers was a widespread practice that would continue in the future. Although I don't understand how individual rights have to take place in widespread practice in order for you to make a case or to to take any action. But I think what's basically happening here is a jurisdictional issue with this particular judge, not necessarily the, you know, deciding on the merits that what these federal officers officers are doing are unconstitutional. This judge just wants individuals to sue. But that can be very difficult, according to Rosenblum and many others who say it's hard to identify what happened to you when no one tells you who who arrests you, what entity arrested you, what you're being arrested for, or even in some cases where they're taking you. She said in a statement, Rosenblum did, that she was disappointed and continued to believe that all Oregonians have a right to know which federal law enforcement agencies are policing our streets and why they are detaining peaceful protesters. And from the New York Times... Homeland Security officials made false statements in a bid to justify expelling New York residents from a program that let United States travelers speed through borders and airport lines, and this according to federal lawyers who admitted this on Thursday. The unusual admission contained in a court filing said the inaccuracies, quote, undermine a central argument in the Trump administration's case for barring New Yorkers from the programs after the state passed a law enabling undocumented immigrants to get driver's licenses. The filing was a surprising retreat by the Trump administration in its continuing battle with Democratic-led states and cities over immigration policy. Federal officials had previously insisted New York was an outlier in the restrictions it placed on the access the immigration authorities have to State Department of Motor Vehicle records. 
For that reason, they argued, New York was endangering national security and could not be trusted to participate in global entry and related programs. But in their filing Thursday, the government lawyers acknowledged that several other states, Washington, D.C., and some U.S. territories also limited access to motor vehicle information and had not been subject to similar clampdowns. Also from the New York Times, Pharma insiders are making millions of dollars after announcing positive developments, including support from the government in their efforts to fight COVID-19. After such announcements, the insiders from at least 11 companies, most of them smaller firms whose fortunes often hinge on the success or failure of a single drug, have sold shares worth well over a billion dollars since March. And this is according to figures compiled for the New York Times by Equilar, a data provider. And as we know, right now, Congress is quibbling over whether to send us an additional $600 a week for unemployment, which is about to expire, uh, you know, right ahead of looming uh, eviction moratoriums expiring. And in some cases, company insiders here are profiting from regularly scheduled compensation or automatic stock trades. But in other situations, senior officials appear to be pouncing on opportunities to cash out while their stock prices are high. And some companies have awarded stock options to executives shortly before market-moving announcements about their vaccine progress. These sudden windfalls highlight the powerful financial incentives for company officials to generate positive headlines in the race for coronavirus vaccines and treatments, even if the drugs might never pan out. And finally, a federal judge in California denied the Trump administration's attempt to stop or pause an order requiring the release of children in federal immigration custody, which had been ordered for today, Monday. In a Saturday ruling, Judge Dolly Gee appeared to make the upcoming deadline moot by saying that U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement doesn't have to release the children if the the three ways outlined in her previous order can't be met. But Gee also underscored in her order that ICE still had the duty to release the children in a timely manner. The three ways Gee had outlined included releasing families who were in ICE detention together, releasing children to a sponsor, or releasing families based upon a federal court order. Uh, Shailen Fluerty, director of uh, Proyecto Dili, an organization that offers legal services to families in detention, decried this move as allowing ICE to decide whether to continue keeping children detained. Gee, who oversees the implementation of the Flores Agreement, which governs the care of children in custody, said in June that given, quote, noncompliance or spotty compliance with masking and social distancing rules, it was imperative to transfer children out of the facilities. There are currently 969 detainees in ICE custody with positive coronavirus cases who are under isolation or monitoring as of July 23rd. That's according to ICE, if you want to take that number on face value. Of those, there are 25 confirmed cases in Karnas and one in Dili, two of the family detention centers. Overall, there have been more than 3,700 confirmed cases in custody. And those are the major headlines from the weekend. After the break, I will be speaking with Mary Trump. You do not want to miss it. Stay with us. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's AG. Thanks for supporting the podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Caliper CBD. We know how important it is to practice self-care, but who said taking care of yourself needs to be hard? If it's hard to take care of yourself, you're just adding to your anxiety. But that's the great thing about CBD. It helps you feel better without having to make drastic changes to your routine. Personally, CBD has helped me feel more calm. I've been sleeping easier, and I feel less sore after workouts or long, busy days. Caliper has introduced a better way to consume CBD. Unlike CBD oils, Caliper CBD powder is completely tasteless and mixes easily in food 
food or drink. With precisely 20 milligrams in each packet of Caliper CBD, you'll never question how much CBD you're taking again. I like to put it in my morning coffee or post-workout protein shake. Um, and it's clinically proven, by the way, that you absorb 450% more CBD with Caliper CBD powder as compared to tinctures. And that is crazy. That's such a huge difference. Caliper gives you all the benefits of CBD in just 15 minutes. That's twice as fast about as, as CBD oil. And Caliper is completely THC-free, so you get all the benefits of CBD without any intoxicating or mind-altering effects. Caliper is made with all natural, non-GMO ingredients. No fillers, no added chemicals or artificial flavors. So take care of yourself, but also make it easy on yourself to take care of yourself with Caliper CBD. Get 20% off your first order when you use promo code DAILYBEANS at trycaliper.com slash dailybeans. You can try Caliper CBD risk-free for 30 days. If you don't love it, they will give you a full refund. That's trycaliper.com slash dailybeans. And don't forget promo code DAILYBEANS at checkout for 20% off your first order. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, Today for the interview, I am honored to welcome the author of the book, Too Much and Never Enough, How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man. This is the president's niece, Mary Trump. Mary, thank you for speaking with me today. Oh, it's an honor for me, AG. I really appreciate it. (laughs) That's okay. You're welcome. (laughs) But first, I just wanted to say um, that blows me away. But your book is incredible. It's so well written. And uh, I have to admit, I was a little shocked when I first reached out to you that not only you did you agree to speak with us, but that you knew about our podcasts. So thank you very much for that. I suppose uh, that's a bit of my own imposter syndrome rearing its head. It's one of the things that makes it so difficult to understand Donald Trump, despite my best efforts, because he's the opposite of imposter syndrome. <laughs> that's right. That's, uh, yes, it's absolutely right. Uh, he he embodies it in a way that... Uh, <laughs> One shouldn't, certainly. But yeah, he's at the opposite end of the spectrum of people like you and me, I believe. Which is good, but, you know, separate issue. It's good, but I think that that's what makes it so hard for us to sort of grasp um, what's going on, which is why I'm so happy that you put put this book together, because you've outlined it and you've drawn these through lines uh, between, you know, the Trump Organization and the White House and and et cetera that, that really sort of explain how this all came to be. And I wanted to kick this off because I know you told uh, Rachel Maddow on her show uh, what compelled you to write this book because uh, you said you could no longer stay silent while basically watching him dismantle our institutions. Mm -hmm. And I was hoping you could tell us uh, a little bit more about that feeling of urgency and sort of what prompted it. Sure. Um, I mean, I've been feeling the urgency um, as soon as he got the nomination. which, you know, was just horrible strategy on the Republican side. It never should have happened. Um, and, you know, I still, I still didn't think it had a, a chance, but I also didn't know, like, how many people would um, just do everything in their power to kneecap Hillary Clinton. Um, you know, so I just didn't take it seriously. And then it started getting really serious. And I thought, all right, I, I feel like I need to do something. And you know, I talked to my daughter about it. I talked to my best friend about it. And, and you know, I was all ready to go. And then I realized it wouldn't have mattered because I didn't have anything concrete to offer anybody. You know, I would have just been giving my opinion of his lack of fitness and his incompetence. And, uh, you know, nothing else he did mattered. So, um, you know, he was attacking war heroes and gold star families and disabled reporters and, you know, uh, admitting to sexual assault. So 
there was, literally was no reason for me to think uh, anything I would do would matter, which is also, you know, part of having been uh, in this family. Um, you know, nobody mattered really except Donald. Uh, so it wasn't until uh, Suzanne Craig, uh, investigative reporter for the New York Times, knocked on my door, and over the next few, because I rebuffed her, <laughs> I was in no mood to be talking to reporters who had entirely ignored me before the election. Mm. Um, so I was like, you know, it's a little late now. But over the next few months, she she made a very good case and reminded me that I had in my possession, or at least my, uh, the lawyer who had handled, um, the lawsuit between me and my family in 1999, 2000, I guess, um, had 40,000 pages of documents that belonged to me from that lawsuit. And in her words, she believed they could rewrite the financial history of the Trump family. Mm -hmm. So it's, Took a while, but I finally got the documents, handed them over, and then over the course of their investigation, and then certainly after the article, I felt like, you know what, I I have something concrete now, and it's getting worse every day. So, you know, for the first few months of the administration, I could just sit helplessly and watch in horror as he enacted the Muslim ban and threw transgender troops out of the military and then started kidnapping and torturing children and their parents at the border. Um, but then, you know, I felt with the, the Times report and then, you know, my uh, being able to point to something concrete, I might actually be able to do something. Uh, and that's what led to the book. Yeah, well, a lot of us didn't take it seriously, his run right. um, for presidency. I remember I was a comedian at the time. Uh, also working at uh, at the Department of Veterans Affairs, and I was doing a panel of like live election returns. And there was one other comedian on the panel who was a Trump supporter. And I had bought, um, I was at a arts and crafts store, and they were the, their Halloween clearance sale was happening. And I bought this stuffed crow, and I had brought it with me, <laughs> thinking, ha ha ha! Oh, no. At the end, I'm going to pull this out of the bag and <sighs> hand it to this guy and be like, "You can eat crow." And I'm sitting there, I pull up in the, I pull up in the comedy palace parking lot and i look at the crow and i'm like you know what i'm not bringing it in i, I it's something told me like oh like i had this just terrible feeling that uh that i would be eating crow so i left it in the passenger side uh of my car and i still have it it's it's a reminder yep yeah <laughs> yep I, yeah it's astonishing actually how many of us were in that boat that night you know because mm. Um, I just didn't realize how many people didn't know him the way New Yorkers do. I mean, certainly the way his family does, but the way New Yorkers do. And I also had, not that I'd forgotten it exactly, but there hadn't been such a stark reminder of how deep misogyny runs in this country. Um, mm. so yeah, it, it was, it, I, I guess in retrospect, maybe it shouldn't have been that surprising since I think the last four decades of um, the Republican project has been leading towards this kind of administration and a person like him, you know. 
Yeah, and I, I was surprised by that too. You you know, like you mentioned, all these New York elites knew he was a joke, um, didn't pay his bills, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, it was just this sort of uh, trumped up, so to speak, false front of a, of a human person. Yeah. And uh, I, I it, it shocked me that 63 million-ish people uh, couldn't see that because we could all see it, yeah. even if, you know, we weren't elite New Yorkers or, you know, I'm, I'm talking about me and the rest of the people that... Uh-huh that uh, I was voting with. So it was kind of a shock, um, a, very, a very big shock, actually. And the the thing that gets me about your book, though, is that it's filled with these literal conversations that serve as metaphors for what we're facing as a country today. And I don't even know if metaphors is the right word. It's, it's, it's so literal. But I was particularly struck uh, by a conversation you wrote about between Donald's brother, your father, uh, and their father, Fred, uh-huh. um, and your dad, your dad knew that his drinking uh, was a problem. And he sat down with him uh-huh. across from a table and said, I need help. I can't yep. do this alone. Yep. And instead of saying, how can I help? Fred said, what do you want from me? Uh-huh. And I don't know if it was intentional, uh, but that seems to perfectly illustrate the choice that we face in November between Biden and Trump. Biden seems like a how can I help kind of guy. And Donald is a what do you want from me kind of guy the opposite of what we should look for in a public servant. So that's why I was shocked about him being able to trick these 63 million Americans into voting for him. Yeah, no, yeah, that's astonishing. It's a perfect distillation, I think, of, of what faces us in November. You're totally right about that. And um, I think, you know, in 2016, a lot of people who voted for him were voting for him because they, they're Republicans, and that's what Republicans do, and they want their stupid tax cuts, right? Um I live sadly on on Long Island, and uh, you know, people I was friends with before this, but no longer am because you know, in the far distant past, you could be friends with people in the different party, and apparently, you can't be anymore. Um, you know, they're pro-choice, they're pro-marriage equality, they understand that climate change is the real thing, but they want their tax cuts, and that's the kind of voter they are. Um, so it kind of didn't surprise me, considering you know the the skewed coverage and uh, how the media propped him up and knocked Hillary Clinton down at every turn. Um, what did shock me was that there are people who actually admire him. Uh, so, not that this was ne- necessarily a, a conscious goal in the book, but I I did want the people who admire him to, if they even read the book, which they probably will. Uh, to see just that it, what a false facade this is. Um, and as for the people who are just knee-jerk Republicans, um, I don't want any of them going to the polls pre- pretending they don't know. Yeah, uh, I can I can see that. And it's also sort of the impetus that uh, was, you know, what why we started our podcast uh-huh. was, you know, this isn't going to get a lot of attention. We need to see if we can get this, this Mueller investigation as... Uh-huh much attention as it can get. And so that was sort of the impetus of that. That and I felt like it needed to be by women, uh, all these podcasts yeah. out there by men. And I feel like women have sort of a different sense of justice, especially where somebody so misogynistic as, as Donald is is concerned. I felt like we really, I think, need a, a, a people who identify as women's perspective mm-hmm. on, on this. Yeah. And um yeah, don't get me started on the Mueller investigation. I could talk to you about that for like three <laughs> three years. Um, but uh, <laughs> you're right. Uh, the perspective has become everything in some ways. 
because so many people's perspectives aren't ever represented properly or they're, you know, marginalized uh, in some way. And I think we do see a shift, at least, you know, I I don't want to be... I was just going to say something really weird. I'm a strangely optimistic person, but um, Mm. I feel myself becoming a little, I don't want to get cynical, but I'm definitely feeling a little more cynical about things. But um, I do feel like there is a shift occurring, you know, post George Floyd that, that people are finally beginning to understand that we, especially, you know, uh, privileged white people um, need to understand that, uh, you know, there are other voices other perspectives that are vitally important and we just need to shut up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I was particularly struck uh, in one of the later chapters in your book, when you talk about how Donald must have been so jealous of officer Chauvin as he had his knee on the neck of George Floyd. I thought that was a really standout moment as well. Thank you. Yeah. You know, it, 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 it was really difficult to uh, figure out how to put that because um, so I just sort of made it, um, like an illustration of what I imagine going through his head because Donald is, is, is the weakest person I've ever met in my life. And he would consider what Chauvin did strong, right? But mm-hmm. at the same time, what Chauvin did, it was the most weak, cowardly, letting aside despicable, murderous race, whatever else it was, just weak and cowardly. And Donald would look at that and see strength. That's where we are. Yeah, he's got just this warped sense of strength. Yep. Uh, that uh, and what is and what what power means. Um, and uh, I do have a, a few more of these uh, literal metaphors. I don't know what else to call them uh, that I want to talk to you about. Will you stay with me right after this quick break? Absolutely. All right, everybody, stay with us. We'll be right back with Mary Trump. Hey, friends, it's AG. I'm not sure where you are right now listening to this, but where I am, I think it's about 97,000 degrees today. So I hope you're somewhere cooler. But wherever you are, it's summer and we have to hydrate. Drinking enough water increases your brain power. It boosts productivity, helps your immune system. It prevents headaches. It increases focus, improves your skin and mood. It helps your digestion and your gut, and it gives you energy. It even prevents bad breath and can help you lose weight. But how much water should you drink? 10 cups a day? A gallon? Do I need an IV drip? But the good news here is that you don't have to make it so complicated, and that's why I start my day with Hydrant. Hydrant helps you hydrate faster. Hydrant has created a refreshing electrolyte powder that you mix directly into your water to more efficiently and effectively hydrate your body. It hydrates you quickly and keeps you going for longer. And each rapid hydration mix has the four essential electrolytes your body needs, sodium, potassium, magnesium, and zinc. And it packs a punch to help your body hydrate fast and stay hydrated. If you're looking for that extra boost of energy, there's also Hydrant Plus Caffeine, which contains 100 milligrams of, milligrams of caffeine from green tea. And Hydrant is backed by research. The formula was developed by an Oxford scientist. It's also loved by pro athletes, performers, celebrities, and thousands of five, it has thousands of five-star reviews. So and it's made with real fruit juice powder. It's delicious and refreshing, and it comes in a variety of flavors, including summer-friendly iced tea lemonade and fruit punch. Right now, my favorite flavor is the orange mango, because you know I love mango, and it tastes amazing. And I always feel refreshed and revitalized afterwards, especially if I've just gone on a run or a walk outside in this heat. Plus, it's backed by a 100% satisfaction guarantee. If you don't love it, send it back for a full refund. You really need to try it for yourself to see what I'm talking about. It tastes incredible and it works. Hydrant starts 
at just a buck a packet for 30 for 30 days uh, and even more with a monthly subscription and we've got a special deal for our listeners you can save 25 percent on your first order just go to drinkhydrant.com slash daily beans or enter promo code daily beans at checkout that's d-r-i-n-k-h-y-d-r-a-n-t dot com slash daily beans and enter promo code daily beans for 25 percent off your first order again drinkhydrant.com slash daily beans and enter promo code daily beans to save 25 percent and we thank them for sponsoring this podcast all right, everybody, welcome back. We've been talking to Mary Trump, and I've been we've been sort of discussing this idea of of some of these illustrations that come up in in dialogue and actions and uh, in the book uh, that that occurred in in your family, Mary, and how they sort of are playing out today. And I was thinking of uh, something we've learned about Donald as president. You were telling the story of him hiring you to ghostwrite his third book, The Art of the Comeback, I think it was, and uh, you were looking for something substantial to write about. Um, his business acumen, or even just what the fuck he did uh, <laughs> at the Trump Organization, and that daily uh, you witnessed him having people bring him newspaper clippings of himself uh, that he would write replies on with a marker. There's the marker. And mm-hmm. I immediately thought about the president's daily brief and how he has recently claimed that he wasn't briefed on Russia, for example, paying the Taliban ah. bounties to murder U.S. troops, uh, despite it having been in the brief on February 27th. It occurred to me that if the brief didn't include information that praised him, that he mm-hmm. could just take a magic marker to write witty comebacks on, he's probably not interested in it. Do you think that that sort of self-aggrandizement and having to be constantly neededly praised instead of having to worry about the problems of other people is like lends to his attitude towards get, getting intelli- important intelligence like this? Yeah, it's it's exactly those two things. It's not about him, so who cares? And if it's about other people, it's boring. And, you know, we, we see that with uh, this, I you know, COVID-19 now, I, I can't even think of it as a, a like a, a health crisis anymore because it's, it's so deliberate what's happening. It's, you know, it's like mass murder at, at this point. Um, it's, it's boring. You know, it's the same thing every day. Who cares? It's not about him. It's making him look bad. So we just need to focus on something else. And clearly the uh, Russia bounty thing is I mean that's treason. That is definitionally treason, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that he's not gonna he's not gonna pay attention to it or admit to it. Um, and look look what's happened. Where did that story go? Yeah, there's no I in treason. I can hear it yeah. right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> and that reminds me of of your story about uh, you had a few stories actually about personal responsibility or his lack of it. Mm-hmm. Um, what was it about his upbringing that caused Donald to never accept responsibility? Is it intentional? Do you think, or or does he actually think he's not responsible for his own obvious failures? You talk about the first time he had to face his failures between you know in the mid nineties about the bankruptcies, failed marriage, mounting debt. And that was the impetus for him to sort of betray the family. What, what happened? And how did Fred foil that scheme? And how did that sort of lead to this total, I have no, I take no responsibility attitude? I think initially, you know, when he was young and watching um, how his father uh, abused, humiliated and dismantled my father, who was willing, you know, to take responsibility and admit when he was wrong. That, that those things were valued, 
they were considered weaknesses, right? Uh, so Donald was never going to do it. He was going to be right. And he took it another step farther. He wasn't just not going to be wrong. He was going to be right all the time. You know, he's never going to apologize and just be the greatest, the best, the most tremendous. Uh, no matter what was happening, no more than everybody else. And I think over time, it's it's become part of his reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he has very, very little insight into, well, he has no insight into any of that, uh, which is why it's not going to change. Um, so in the 90s, when all of those bankruptcies were happening, you know, it wasn't just him. I, my, my grandfather was heavily invested, both monetarily and uh, psychologically, in, in maintaining the myth of Donald's success. So, you know, it wasn't just Donald saying, oh, you know, it's, it's the banks, it's the economy. It was also my grandfather because mm-hmm. not, neither one of them could take responsibility for anything and neither one of them could admit fault. Um, you know, my, my Aunt Marianne told me uh, that, that they were very alike in that way and that they were both horrible judges of character. Mm-hmm. Which makes sense when you consider my grandfather picked Donald to be, you know, his heir apparent. And we look at the people Donald surrounds himself with. So it's that's pretty self-evident. Mm-hmm. And he and apparently Donald had tried to get uh, oh, something signed by, yeah, your, by, your, uh, by Fred. And, and, and he Fred was like, nah, yeah. no. Yeah, I knew I knew I'd lost this right there. <laughs> Thank you for bringing me back. Um my grand so this would have been in 1990. My grandfather was already suffering from Alzheimer's. Uh, you know, it wasn't quite as bad as it eventually got, but it was pretty bad. And Donald had my grandfather's attorney um, draw up a codicil, a fake codicil. And this attorney and my grandfather's accountant. And again, I'm not entirely sure why they thought this was a good idea, but they brought it to my grandparents' house, put it in front of my grandfather. And he, I think it might have been because an, another lawyer who my grandfather didn't know was also involved in this, and it just made him suspicious. He was having one of his like rare lucid days, and he couldn't quite put his finger on what was wrong exactly, but he knew something was wrong. He got really angry, threw them out, and then took took the thing to my grandmother who immediately called my aunt who was at the time a prosecutor um, and got a, uh, a colleague who specialized in trust and estates to look at it. And, you know, the whole thing, his whole scheme to disinherit essentially his siblings. He was, uh, this codicil made Donald the sole executor and gave him a power over what kind of disbursements were made to his brother and sisters. Mm-hmm. So it effectively would have shut them out um, because they would have, as I think Marianne put it, you know, they would have had to beg him for a cup of coffee. I'm sure mm-hmm. that's an exaggeration, but you know, um, that's essentially uh, what happened. And what's really interesting about it is, well, one, they continue to like, celebrate holidays together as if nothing had happened. But that if it if if Donald's scheme had worked, 
like when my grandfather died, there would have been nothing left because he's so horrible at business and with money. Yeah, and I imagine at that point he wasn't even thinking of of the two of you, uh, Freddie's children. Um, I feel like in his mind, y'all were already sort of just written out, which eventually was what uh, they tried to do. Uh, when I'm, you know, at the end, when all the siblings, when you had to get the lawyer and all that other stuff to try to figure the will out, um, yep. it, it seemed like Donald was like, "All right, the other two siblings, but not these kids over here." Right. Uh, although actually, um, we had already been written out of my grandfather's will. Uh, he wrote a will in 1984, which is three years after my dad died. He'd already disinherited us. Obviously, mm-hmm. we didn't know that. So, and I don't know if if uh, my aunts and uncles knew that either, but they certainly knew it in 1990 and did nothing to change to change it or change my grandfather's mind about it. Um, because one of their lawyers said at the time, you do realize that this is like essentially disinheriting them completely and that could cause some problems down the road. And they're like, yeah, no, we're we're cool with that. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, it's not surprising um, now, but at the the time it was a bit of a shock. Hmm. And um, I I feel like I see a lot of, you know, uh, of Fred Sr. propping up Donald uh, for Mm -hmm. so long. And I see that also sort of happening with his kids. And I like, for example, the RNC purchasing hundreds of thousands of Don Jr.'s books to get them on the bestsellers list, um, despite there being a grammatical error on the cover. But that's okay. Um, So what what is that about? And also uh, just this penchant for drama and and bad press like he just wants to stir shit up uh even if you know is that just to distract from him looking like a failure having to admit responsibility for anything yeah i mean distraction and division um have always been to his benefit you know Mm -hmm. it's it's like um the shell game keep people focused on the wrong thing and uh you know because look what happens uh we're, we're focused on one horrible thing he does, and then the next horrible thing comes along. And unlike other mortal people, instead of those horrible things having a cumulative cumulative effect, they they just kind of replace each other. So we forget about all the other stuff. You know, it's it's like um, if somebody commits twenty crimes and they only get held to account for the twentieth. Because, oh, yeah, you know, I mean, we knew the 19 happened already. What what difference does it make? So we'll just deal with the 20th. It's, it's just fascinating. And you said earlier about, you know, this whole issue of through lines. And it that was one of the things that most struck me um, is how similar uh, the, my family situation was vis-a-vis Donald um, to his situation now vis-a-vis the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the enabling, the overlooking, the egregious, um, and, you know, not, you're right, the way, the way my cousins are treated is very similar. And I do think part of it is, like, okay, what, without my grandfather, his money, his power, his connections, what might Donald have been able to accomplish on his own? I mm-hmm. very little, I imagine. Mm-hmm. And and my cousins 
have been as enabled. Um, you know, none of them have worked for anybody but him. Um, you know, they've none, done nothing independently. And except, you know, murder endangered species, I guess, if that counts for a thing. <laughs> and, you know, they, he can't even sell a book on his own. Uh, Johnny. I'm sorry. Killing a giraffe with a high-powered rifle isn't hard work that you've been licensed to be able to do. Uh, That doesn't seem like a challenge to me, but um, uh, no, but but nothing they've ever done is a challenge, right? And that that was interesting too because your your father actually was like the first Trump sibling to go try to be a self-made man, get his pilot license, get his pilot's license, do all this stuff. Uh, and, and he was sort of drawn back in and then tried to get back out again. Uh, but he seemed like he was fighting for this own, you know, for his own being a self-made man, which was a, a thing that your uh, grandfather seemed to pretend to praise, but didn't uh, when it came down to it. Now we have you, third removed here, totally self-made. And I, I, I'm just I, I'm so interested in how that that cycle was broken. Is it just by observing and seeing and learning or is it just because you were far removed from it? Um, not, not removed enough, apparently, but, you know, certainly fared better than my, than any of, any of those siblings and certainly better than my dad. Um, and, you know, I mean, self-made in the context of, uh, I haven't really been in the family for a couple of decades, but I had every material advantage growing up. So I don't want to make it sound like I've been working in a coal mine. Um, you know, but I think for my dad. Yes, early on, he also had those material advantages, but he was struggling under the stress of being the namesake and the the son who was supposed to take over the family business. Mm. Um, so the fact that he was, and he had every intention of doing that, by the way, you know, the only reason it didn't work because my grandfather didn't like him, didn't respect him and made his life miserable. So after three years, he decided to do what he loved, which was flying. And my grandfather treated him, despite the fact that being a professional pilot for TWA in 1964 was like being a rock star, you know? Yeah. Um, my grandfather treated him like he was had decided to, you know, throw it all away to you know, do drugs, <laughs> you know, and live on the street, yeah. which is exactly how he treated me. When I was at Columbia, uh, getting my master's, um, because for my grandfather, if you don't follow what he thinks is acceptable, then it's a waste of time and you're a selfish, lazy loser. Hmm. And that's what he thought of my father, which is just stunning, considering what he actually did accomplish totally by himself and without any support. Mm, yeah. And then, you know, then, of course, when we go back to talking about the penchant for drama and the distractions, the problem yeah, uh-huh. with with Trump's distractions, with Donald's distractions, is that they aren't harmless. They're actually like he'll distract by being a racist. And and right. and, and that's a real story that needs coverage. And then when you cover it, people are like, don't fall for the distraction. You're like, no, it's it's important <laughs> that we that's talk right. about this. Um and I know that uh, you had uh, discussed this with Matto and brought it up in your book that he, you know, he's used the N word and he's he's used derogatory epithets towards uh, Jews. And um, I mean, do you remember any specific instances of of that happening? 
or is it just sort of a it's just sort of a general feeling in the family that that always no, sort just, of existed? It was the way it was. I mean, you know, like if if I had been, if I could think of a specific example that would suggest that it didn't happen very often, you know. Um, oh, right, right. It would it be a surprise, just, and you'd remember. Right, it. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, you know, it's just the way it was, and it's not like it was unique to them, um, because you know, Jamaica states in particular, uh, town in Queens where they grew up was a hundred percent white and Christian in the forties and fifties. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when the first Italian American family moved in, my grandfather was utterly incensed and horrified. So, um, yeah, I, it's, it doesn't surprise me. Um, and it also suggests, I mean, it doesn't surprise me that he would be behaving the way he does now because he is a racist. And I think the media, you know, the mainstream media, uh, cause you guys, you know, do a great job at telling, telling the truth about what's actually going on. Um, it took them like what, three years to call him a liar. Um, mm. and they're still dancing around the racism. He's a racist. It, the things he does aren't racially tinged. They're not racial, they're not what whatever metaphors they they bend over backwards to you know prevent themselves from yeah, misleading statements right exactly <laughs> yeah you know it's it's not um like there's just nothing surprising about it so I'm not entirely sure why so many people in the media just feel the need to like protect him from what he actually is and what he's doing uh, but. You're right. Uh, His distractions are in every distraction in and of itself is important and is something that needs to be um, seriously looked into because, you know, what's happening in Portland, that's a distraction. But Mm -hmm. it's terrifying. I mean, you've got brown shirts in an American city, essentially brutalizing peaceful protesters. Yeah, from the book On Tyranny, when they bring the officers yep. from the borderlands into your cities to, to right. arrest citizens, we are we're in step 12 of the 10 steps of being a dictatorship. That's um, right. It's frightening. It's terrifying. I do have to say, though, that um, that book knocked me off of the uh, Amazon Best, it knocked me down to two and was the number one bestseller on Amazon. I was so happy. It's like, if any book is going to knock me off, that's the one I want it to be. Um, because people really need to read that book. Everybody needs to read that book. And because um, it is happening here. Mm-hmm. Well, that speaks a lot, doesn't it? On Tyranny and your book. <laughs> in the top spots uh number three 1984 then we have brave new world followed by dante's inferno and uh, anyway um i could go on I, I i i do have to take a really quick break here i do have a couple more questions for you will you stay with us of course all right thanks mary we'll be right back stay with us Hey everybody, it's AG. With the pandemic still in full swing, and so many everyday tasks are more challenging these days, but seeing a doctor should not be challenging. And that is why I recommend using Plush Care. Plush Care provides primary and urgent health care through virtual appointments, and scheduling an appointment, even for the same day, is really easy. 
You just pick a slot that works for you, click on it, and boom, you're booked online. So I don't waste time on hold on the phone or sitting in crowded waiting rooms. With my Plush Care membership, I can see my doctor from the comfort of my own home in my onesies. I'm wearing them now. They've got footies. But with Plush Care, I can get diagnosed, treated, and even have a prescription sent to my local pharmacy if I need it. And that all happens within minutes. And if I have any questions before or after my visit, I can send unlimited messages to my care team anytime. Plus, Plush Care accepts most major insurance carriers, and it's available in all 50 states. And with how difficult things are, if you're feeling anxious, depressed, or stressed about what's going on in the world, Plush Care doctors are there to help by discussing treatment options and providing prescriptions as needed. I can tell you personally, my Plush Care experience has been a breeze. Signing up was super easy, very user-friendly website. It only takes a minute, and it's just as easy to schedule an appointment. The entire process has been convenient, super convenient, and I was immediately comfortable and felt confident with my doctor because all Plush Care doctors graduated from one of the top 50 medical schools in the country, and they're highly rated by their patients. So I get peace of mind that I'm getting the highest quality health care. Plush Care makes it easy for me to get the excellent care I need when I need it. They can do the same for you. So start your membership today. Go to plushcare.com slash dailybeans to start your free 30-day trial. That's P-L-U-S-H-C-A-R-E dot com slash dailybeans for a free 30-day trial. plushcare.com slash dailybeans. All right, welcome back. We've been talking to Mary Trout. Mary, I'm so glad you're with us today. I only have a few more questions here for you um, because um, there's... There's this part in, in in the book where the family uh, espoused that they should not have supported your mother for as long as they did. Uh, and I still can't figure out what they had against her. I mean, you tried to explain it. Um, and they, But they said they should have cut her off, let her stand on her own two feet. And the idea that someone wasn't earning their own way when they, you know, that they deserved nothing from the family. But I don't understand how Donald squares that in his mind. He doesn't do anything to earn it either. And your father seemed to be the only one of the Trump kids that tried to make his own way. Like I said, he was ridiculed. So I don't understand that dynamic at all about you have to earn your own way to get our giant fat buckets of money. Right. Well, first of all, it just shows you how delusional he is about his um, imaginary accomplishments. Right. Mm. For him to be able to say that about somebody else while he is. He was at that time. In, at the moment he said that to me, he was receiving a four hundred and fifty thousand dollar a month allowance from the bank. So, I mean, I didn't know that at the time, um, but I know it now. So it, it put it into even starker uh, perspective. As for my mom, I, you know, she was married to my father. So th- there you go. Uh, that was the first strike against her. Um, mm. They also, and I mean, I've never really understood this either, but they considered her a gold digger, which mm. was absurd. Um, but I think it also helped them because they were able to blame her for my father's alcoholism, mm. which was, even more absurd than the gold digger thing. Uh, Because, you know, as I say in the book, if she was a gold digger, she was an exceptionally bad one because if you'd seen the apartment we lived in, you would know that uh, she she, uh, didn't quite earn her stripes as a gold digger. Mm. Um, So it was, that was the biggest part of it, right? She she could be an easy scapegoat, you know, like everything else in in that family, uh, it boils down to money. And, you know, everything's a zero-sum game. If you 
the more you have, the better you are. If you give something away, you have less, the other person has more. And that kind of threatens your need to be, you know, to have the most, to be the richest, what have you. And it was also um, a way to delegitimize us, um, which then made it easier, you know, because it wasn't just that we, our father was an alcoholic loser who, as my charming grandmother said when her son died at the age of 42, was worth a whole lot of nothing. Uh, hmm. My mother was also this um, gold-digging enabler who was to blame for everything bad that had happened to Freddie. So therefore, why should we get anything? You know, if that's what we came from, then we, you know, we don't deserve it. Um, yeah. And in fact, we're not even in my grandfather's will, we're referred to as the issue of Fred G. Trump Jr. We're never mentioned by name. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Relegated to being the issue, huh? Yeah. Wow. Um, that's that's incredible. Uh, another through line I wanted to, to talk to you about, um, and again, this book is full of through lines. Everyone has to read it. Uh, I want to talk about the through line of strong arming, like mob style strong arming. It started as far back as mm-hmm. I can tell in your book with Donald hiding your dad's toys. Um, uh, my he, uncle Rob's toys. Or yeah. your uncle Rob's toys, excuse me, Robert's mm-hmm. toys. Uh, and then um, going all the way up to the, the later chapters with the struggle over or trying to figure out how the estate was going to be settled. And mm-hmm. Donald's brother, Robert, threatening you saying that he mm-hmm. was going to bankrupt shares you owned in some buildings in Brooklyn saying you'd been paying ta- you'll be paying taxes on money you'll you've never seen for the rest of your life and then <laughs> and then Marianne Trump's sister taking away the Trump medical insurance that everyone relied on especially your nephew William who was stricken with seizures at a very young age and and this sense of punishment and threats going all the way back mm-hmm. um and now the through line here is the weaponization of our institutions to to uh-huh. give favors for his friends and threaten his political enemies. And it's just the it's so stark and, and obvious that this has just been something that's been ingrained in him since he was a kid. Yeah. And that that comes directly from my grandfather. You know, yeah. um, Donald learned a lot of lessons really well. And that was one of them. You know, you do whatever it takes. It doesn't like, as far as my grandfather was concerned, you win at any cost. It doesn't matter if you have to cheat, lie, steal, or get in bed with the mafia, which my grandfather certainly did. Um, I'm sorry. Sorry. My parrot just bit me. Oh. I'm very sorry. You have a parrot. Does it talk? Yeah. I, he imitates sounds and whistles better than he talks, but he talks sometimes. His name is Sebastian. You gotta you gotta teach him to say a woman, man, camera, T V <laughs> person. Oh he I'm sure I could and he'll remember it in like a year. <laughs> in fact I just got him out of order, so I, I lost points. You did lose points. And uh you know, you're talking about the test, so you're failing the test, you know. <laughs> <laughs> We'll talk about that in a minute. I can't believe he took the Montreal Cognitive Assessment and bragged about it. Like, what? what? It's just horrifying. But um, anyway, uh, back to the mob stuff. Yeah. Um, So. No, off the cognitive failures and back to the mafia. That's that's the (laughs) crux of a conversation about the president of the United States. Just wanted to point that out. Yeah. Asterisk. Um, Yeah. So. The thing that shocked me 
or not anymore, but that did. And, and, you know, the reason, you know, I knew he was going to be disaster. He's incompetent. He has no intellectual curiosity. He's never, you know, he would be a disaster. I never realized just how many people would enable him. It never occurred to me, and I guess it should have, but that 100% of elected Republicans would fall in line behind this guy. Hmm. And in the process, just demean themselves, debase our institutions, and essentially, you know, put American democracy um, on the brink of collapsing. And, you know, that's not hyperbole. No, it's it's not, especially people like Lindsey Graham, who were good friends with John McCain. It's like, well, how could you possibly, right. you know, prostrate yourself that way? Right. And then, you know, because as far as I'm concerned, Donald is not the problem. Uh, Bill Barr is the problem. Mm. Mitch McConnell's the problem. They know better. They're <laughs> not stupid. I mean, I don't know how smart they are, but they're not stupid. They have no morals. They have, they don't care uh, about, you know, our institutions or the fact that we're destroying, you know, the institutional memory in our, is being destroyed, like particularly at the State Department. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're so craven and uh, singularly focused on whatever their particular agendas are. I think for McConnell, it's power and judges. For Barr, it's power. I, I don't think there's anything else driving him. Um, he's soulless. So, you know, that's, that's the problem right now. Uh, mm-hmm. So, and it, 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 it fits in with that other through line because it wasn't like Donald was, was masterminding. What's the word? Sorry. He wasn't, it's not like Donald was masterminding anything. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he was just useful to smarter more powerful and equally corrupt men. Right. So it's almost like Bill Barr will come in and be like, hey, look at these great articles about you and you look fantastic today. Your hair is amazing. And I would like to also lower the sentence of Roger Stone. Cool. See you. Bye. You know, and just sort of slide out the door having his agenda met. And I mean, I'm not saying that Donald would have a problem with it. No, but it's it's not like he's thinking this stuff up. You know, it's 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 the um, abject creeps like Stephen Miller. You know, who are probably telling him, hey, your base is going to love it. This is really going to play well with the base. Mm-hmm. You know, and it does. <laughs> so, yeah. There you go. Yeah, it does. Yeah, here's an interesting one. You were, you were, uh, uh, I guess, fired unceremoniously from your job <laughs> ghostwriting his book. And but not s- by him. <laughs> that's the thing. He had somebody else do it. We've seen it over and over again. He'll tweet or have somebody else do it. Why is the guy whose catchphrase is you're fired unable to actually fire people, do you think? Why does he avoid that if he seems like if he wants to be so tough and, and, and such a, an asshole? Why can't he fire somebody? Because he's a coward. All right. Simple enough. He's just total coward. And it would mean having to have a human moment with another human being, right? Mm. In which you're, it's uncomfortable, right? He mm-hmm. hates being uncomfortable. Mm. You know, because it's you, you kind of, yeah, you're in control of it because you're firing the person, but you're not in control of the emotions that might go on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, who wants to deal with that? Yeah. Yeah. Now, I'm only a bachelor of psych. 
but and I, I realize it's it's uh, unethical to uh, uh, diagnose anyone that you haven't met with, but you you've witnessed your grandfather slide in, into dementia. Do you see any of that yeah. mirrored in Donald? I mean, Donald, is that sort of? I mean, do you? Because there's just there's a lot of just incoherent ramblings, but it seems like he's kind of been on doing that for a while. Yeah, I you know I there's no way for me to know, right? Yeah. Um, we don't know how he did on the Montreal test, um, and but he took um, it. Why did he take it? He, well, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, that that is the question, is it not? You don't just wander into Walter Reed and say, "I feel like taking your cognitive ability test today." Can you give that to me? Or no? Yeah, exactly. Who knows? So presumably there was a reason. But generally speaking, I don't see any difference in him. You know, he's a remarkably consistent person in terms of his pathologies and his personality. So the way I see it, the only thing that's changed is the amount of pressure he's under. You know, he's never been under stress like this in his life for a couple of reasons. One, you know, he's never really been outside of his depth because he's been, you know, the big deal real estate, uh, you know, he's, his, all he's had to do is like, say, talk to reporters and Brad, you know, that's totally in his wheelhouse. Now, the, the difference between his level of competency and what's required in the position he holds is like light years vast. So he just doesn't know how to handle it. Plus, he's getting scrutiny. I mean, not nearly enough, of course. And pushback, not nearly enough, in ways he never has. So I think it's just stress. Mm. Yeah, it's got, it's got to be hard to like finally feel it um, if you never have. Uh, mm-hmm. One final question, and I guess this is the big, the whopper. What, will he leave office? Everything you know about him, if he loses this election, will he leave office? Will he go quietly? I, I think it depends on, on two factors that we can't know about, you know, we can't determine how they're going to play into this yet. But first of all, it depends on the size of his law. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's a blowout, yeah, <laughs> he, he, he's a, he will, the narcissistic injury will be so deep and painful that he will not be able to face it and he'll figure out a way to spin it that, you know, we don't deserve him and he's going to go do something that's much more impressive than leading the country. Right. Right. Like owning one American network and having his own media station or empire, which is probably, you know, what he, I think initially wanted by running. um, And it wasn't until he realized that there was a shot because so many people were, you know, committing crimes to get him elected (laughs) that he actually wanted to win. Um, So, so that's a, this is why, Every person in the country needs to vote for Joe Biden, and it has to be a landslide for Joe Biden. Um, the second factor is how the people surrounding him will tell him to respond. Mm-hmm. So, because remember, there are a lot of people who are getting a lot out of his power and position. You know, a lot of people are using him to their own ends right now, including his children, some of his children. So 
um, that that actually worries me more. Yeah, my big concern is is his children or Bill Barr. Like, if it's a close race, if Bill Barr whips mm-hmm. up an Office of Legal Counsel memo, granting him some sort of right. powers or wanting an investigation or, you know, some bullshit. Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, I'm with you. I think that that's my biggest fear, which is why we've always said vote. You, we have to vote in numbers too big to manipulate, right? Exactly. Um, so, you know, the the confluence of those two things is going to be very inter- Well, you know what? Hopefully it's not going to be interesting. Hopefully it's going to be really boring. And Biden wins by 300 million votes. And, uh, you know, we can heal. We can get a good night's sleep. And not, and not have to check Twitter 47 million times a day. And, uh, you know, be able to say after a week or two, Joe, Joe who is president? Right. Yeah. <laughs> it would be so nice to forget who, who, who's uh, <laughs> in the Oval Office um, for five minutes. Yeah. Yeah. He, he said he calls him Sleepy Joe. Like that's a, an insult. I, I mean, I want to be sleepy, Mary, after November yeah. 3rd, and, like literally sleep through the night for the first time since November right. 9th, 2016. Uh, yeah, so true. Oh, man. Well, it's been really, really great talking to you today. I really appreciate it. Um, I, I'm so, again, honored that you would come and, and talk to me. It's been really great. And I'm, I'm, I'm honored that you listened to the podcast. I hope in some small way they contributed um, to your, you know, your lexicon. And uh, I really appreciate you coming on today. I, I had a great time. It was a great conversation. And honestly, you guys have uh, been keeping me sane. So, you know, <laughs> it's totally my pleasure. Oh, well, thank you so much. Everybody, author of the book, in case you haven't heard of the title yet, Too Much and Never Enough, How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man. Mary Trump, again, thanks for coming on today. The Daily Beans is executive produced and directed by A.G. and Jordan Coburn and engineered and edited by Mackenzie Mazell and Starburns Industries. Our marketing manager, executive assistant, production and social media direction is Amanda Reeder. Fact-checking and research by A.G., Jordan Coburn, and Amanda Reeder. Our music is written and performed by They Might Be Giants. Our web design and branding are by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. And our website is dailybeanspod.com. <laughs>